Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You ever wonder why you don't walk into walls? How you know you have to step gingerly on ice? How you decide whether you can or can't scale a certain rock? Well, my guest today says the answer lies in our special sense of bodily know-how. His name is Scott Grafton, and he's a neurologist and the author of Physical Intelligence, The Science of How the Body and Mind Guide Each Other Through Life. We begin our conversation discussing how physical intelligence is the mutually responsive interaction between your body and your mind that allows you to interact effectively in the world. Scott then explains how our mind and body work together to build our conception of space, and that without this ability, we couldn't create an area of operations in which to take action. We then discuss how our mind and body communicate with various types of terrain, how we can lose that ability by limiting our movements to simple, safe environments, and how that may explain why old people fall down more. We then discuss how problem solving can be a very physical activity, and whether the feeling of fatigue is more of a matter of the body or the mind. And we end our conversation discussing ways you can keep your physical intelligence sharp as you age. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash physical intelligence. All right, Scott Grafton, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. This is exciting. So you just came out with a new book called Physical Intelligence, The Science of How the Body and the Mind Guide Each Other Through Life. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about your background. Because you're a neuroscientist, but it seems like you've focused on how the mind and body interact with one another. Right. Uh, My background is actually, I started as a neurologist and went to medical school, have taken care of a lot of patients with neurologic problems. And when you do that, it's hard to separate mind and body. Patients come in with problems that are centered in the brain, but really it's, you know, the problems involve both mind and body inevitably. And so just being a clinician and working with patients, you know, you invariably think of the whole person and that just kind of frames the way you see the world. Then I got into brain imaging and was sort of an early pioneer in using functional brain scans to understand how the brain works. And there too, you know, it's kind of amazing. You're looking at these images of, of brains of living people thinking and doing things. So again, you kind of get this holistic view of, of the person, both in terms of what they do and sort of how their mind is working. So you've seen firsthand Descartes' error right? The separation between mind and body. (laughs) Yeah, I see that as, you know, that's just, to me, that's an illusion created by the way our, we use language and the way we, our mind creates concepts. We create concepts of objects and things like bodies, and we create very different kinds of concepts that are more abstract, like minds, and those inevitably get sort of separated at the almost categorical level but they're, they're never really actually separated in a brain. And as we'll see in our conversation, what I thought was really interesting about this book is you, you'll show how, we'll talk about how the mind influences the body, but also the, how the body influences the mind. And it's just almost this cycle you can't even disconnect from each other. That's right. All right, so let's talk about this idea of physical intelligence. What do you mean by that? Well, this is the Art of Manliness podcast. So if you think about manliness sort of as a, as a setup here, you know, one of the one of the core ingredients I think of, you know, manliness sort of classically defined as action, right? You know, a, a man of action or, or the, the concept of what makes a person great in some sense is what they do, how they the actions they they enable and the things they do in their world. 
And physical intelligence is just the underbelly of that. It's the, it's the underpinnings you need to actually get things done. We don't have a, we don't have a manliness area in our brain. We don't have a isolated action area in our brain. We have lots and lots of parts or systems that together allow us to do great things with our bodies, both, both sports-like activities or, you know, sort of extravagant physical behavior, but also just creative things, you know, building a house, pouring a slab of cement, whatever it is. That's, that's the stuff of physical intelligence. Well, speaking of physical intelligence and manliness, what I love about this book is that you explore these ideas of physical, these different concepts of physical intelligence by taking readers along with you on a backpacking trip you did in this year in Nevada's. And this isn't just like a stroll. Like the way you describe it, it sounds very strenuous, very hard, very perilous. Before we get into why you chose that as sort of a framework for explaining these concepts, talk about how did you get into backpacking personally? How long have you been doing it? Oh, I started high altitude mountaineering and rock climbing in high school. And by the time I was 16, I was like climbing the face of Half Dome and and was really an enthusiastic climber. And there was a decision point where, was, you know, are you going to become a climbing bum or a dirtbag climber? Are you going to go to college and go off to medical school? <laughs> and I chose the latter. And I've, I've kind of missed the dirtbag life ever since. So that's, that's a real dualism for me. And so the way I get, you know, to, to be a really good high altitude climber or any kind of rock climber, you got to put a lot of time in it. And so as I grew older, I, I swapped in walking in the wilderness for sort of the more extreme kinds of climbing is I think what I savor the most is just being in very wild places and so why did you decide to use, you know, frame your book and explain these concepts with this backpacking story? Physical intelligence is one of those sort of magic capacities we have that's just sort of automatic and operates under the hood. And we don't have much conscious access to the to the bits that that are needed for physical intelligence. And so I wanted to create a setup where I'm in a place that's very demanding physically, that there's risk, and that the problems, the physical problems are really clear, and they're unclouded by conversations with other people, social media, technology. It's just pure, raw, human, and the world, and that's that's a nice place to just reveal kind of what physical intelligence is and also sort of what we evolved from. And and I think one of the points you make about physical intelligence at the beginning of the book is that physical intelligence really is what, I mean, oftentimes we think of what makes us human is that we think, but a big part of what makes us human is our ability to act in the world and interact with the world. That's right. Just talk to anyone and say, what's the most satisfying thing you've done or experienced in the last month? And invariably it'll be something they did physically it it doesn't have to be you know a superhuman feat or extreme sports it could just be you know i remember my daughter in middle school she made a birdhouse in woodshop she couldn't have been happier right i mean it was she was so satisfied with that activity uh, compared to anything she'd done in terms of schoolwork so yeah that's the stuff that really 
it's the salve that makes us happiest. That's kind of that's what we evolved from, right? We we didn't evolve to sit around and talk or read books. <laughs> that's a, that's icing on the cake. We had, we evolved from rough and tumble environments where we had to find food, build shelter, and find our way through vast rough environments. And we did that up until very recently, only about you know thousand years ago. So the first concept you explore in physical intelligence is our ability to construct a sense of space. And as you said, physical intelligence is one of those things that it's going on under the hood. We often don't even think about it. We, just, we don't even know what's going on. And this, I, this chapter on how we construct space around us, I mean, it kind of blew my mind because you talk about what's going on all the same time to give us an idea of what's in our environment. Right. A, a good example of this would be if you think of a worm crawling towards some food, it has no sense of space. It just has some sensors that are drawing its movements towards that food. Now I can say to you, okay, I want you to think of how you would walk across the room. So you've immediately created an operational space the size of the room. But then I can say, think about uh, walking to the other side of the house. Think about walking across the street. Thinking about Think about walking across to the other side of the city you're in, right? Just in in those moments, you've expanded your operational space. You can mentally stretch out and construct any of those volumes of space and then plan and organize your action inside that volume. It's it's amazing, right, that you could do that. And you have to do it, right? Just as a a search and rescue team doesn't just willy-nilly wander into a the wilderness looking for someone, they, they create a map and they lay out a grid and they say, this is, this is what we're going to do here. We're going we're gonna to first set constraints on the space we want to work in. We do this all the time mentally when we're moving and acting in our environments. And the example you give in, the, in, the, in this chapter is about just being in a tent. You, yeah. you, you're down for the night. And you talked about how what's going on in your mind as your your mind's figuring out what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. So you could hear rustling, and like your mind automatically knew it's like, well, that's not a bear; it's probably just a raccoon. Like how how does how's our brain able to do that? Well, if I I wish I knew. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We can a lot of this is phenomenology we can describe and we can measure in the lab. But there's still a lot of magic about like how brain circuits actually calculate and what the computation is inside the head that allows us to do this, what the algorithms are that enable this capacity. We know we have it. So at a certain level, we really understand a lot. We know a lot about how the brain can zoom and filter and narrow in attention. We know far less about how it expands attention, how it can become more vigilant and bring in actually more information in these wild environments. So as a neurologist, you've probably seen people who've lost this ability. What happens to those individuals? Well, the most dramatic example is patients with focal damage to the right brain, posterior right brain, develop what's called neglect. And the word neglect is a little bit misleading. What they'll do is ignore, unconsciously ignore the left side of the world. And it can be quite severe. I 
I refer to it as the most severe cases, it's like a black hole. Space simply isn't created in the left side of their environment in their mind. And so if you're standing there talking, if you're on the left side of their bed talking to them, you don't exist. And then you walk around to the right side of their bed and they go, oh, hello, how you doing? <laughs> you're there, right? So literally on one side of the bed, there is reality for them. And the other side, there is no reality. There is, there is no nothing there. And there's variations of this. And there's, there's minor forms that are more subtle. It's been called neglect for over 50 years, but it's not like they're intentionally neglecting that space. They can't cook it up in the first place. So that just tells you, you know, at some point you got to make space, right? You got, if, if you're going to do the stuff we do, you know, as humans, one of the very first steps is making some kind of sense of space. Because if you don't make it, you don't interact in it. You don't reach into it. It's just not there. You don't move anywhere near it. The other thing about space, I think that's really important to remember is uh, there's a very strong argument in sort of the cognitive literature, cognitive developmental literature, that it's the way at when you're a baby and then a child and you're moving through space, it's your understanding of what you can do in space that really shapes much of how you think. In other words, we're, we think spatially, right? If I think about relationships between ideas, I can kind of put them in a row spatially and organize them in my mind and space. You know, people like Einstein are, you know, are well known to have sort of thought through their ideas in terms of spatial relationships, physical spatial relationships. So much of much of how we construct the world is spatial. And is it because you you talk about some people can have these um, problems where they they just go completely blank on a certain side. Is it possible for this ability to you know make space in our mind? Can that be dulled from just not using it on a regular basis? I don't know. You know, I think most of, well, what gets dulled is our sort of ability to control how we're going to use attention in our environments. We're pretty good at cooking up space in our minds, but sort of the next step is where are you going to, where are you going to place your attention? And that actually can get dulled or it can get distracted or it can never develop well in the first place. And then you get attention deficit disorders and things like that. And clearly meditation and mindfulness and doing things in wild environments all train us to be more disciplined in how we sort of allocate our attention. So another idea you talk about with physical intelligence is that our both our mind and our body, we might even know this when I think about it, but we're kind of communicating with the environment around us. And I, I use communicate like in quotation marks, but like you talk about this idea of affordances, like an object or a surface can have an affordance and that tells something to our mind and body. I thought this was really interesting. Can you elaborate on this idea? So for surfaces, I was thinking about, here's a good example. If, if, I think everybody's familiar with the half dome in Yosemite Valley. It's this big granite dome and there's the, there's the vertical face, but then there's the rounded faces on the side and the hiker's route goes up the, the rounded side and the surface is just smooth granite and it gets steeper 
and steeper and steeper until, and you're walking up this and there's a, there's a point at which you begin to doubt whether your feet will even stick anymore because it's getting so steep. Can you continue to walk up this slope? And it gets scary because you're way off the deck. And that's an affordance. It's, it's your relationship with this slope. And it's, it's as pure and simple as it could be. Can you maintain footing and continue up this dome? Now, on flat surfaces, you can think about, you know, icy surfaces or, or slopes that are covered with marbly, you know, round rocks, things like that. Can you maintain your footing? So those are, those are kind of surface ideas. And then the more sort of elaborative version of the same thing was, can you fit between two trees? If you're just walking along and there's, as you're in a dense forest, can you squeeze between two trees? Uh, to, that's an affordance. That's an opportunity. It's, it's this idea that the environment creates what's possible and what's impossible for you. you we don't accidentally walk into trees and then around them. We, our mind unconsciously and seamlessly, you know, just recognizes this is an obstruction. This is something I cannot get through. And it's, it's looking for opportunities in the environment that it can accomplish or can, you know, can get through. It's a little bit like uh, a kayaker who's weaving through the gates, right? They're just seeing these, the gates are opportunities for how they're going to move in their environment. And we do this all the time seamlessly. And if you don't have that, you walk into walls. <laughs> you, you don't understand the three-dimensional relationships between objects. Just something on the floor in front of you can completely stymie your ability to move forward. So it's, it's an essential capacity in vision. And it's almost completely ignored in neuroscience. What we look at is how we recognize objects or how we name things or how we categorize things. But there's very little work on how we understand the 3D world and navigate through it physically. So, I mean, it, it sounds like you can be more adept with some affordances than others. I mean, for example, you know, the mountaineering, you probably recognize affordances there, like on the mountain, that some person who's never done that before, would they wouldn't be able to recognize that. Totally. This is, you know, this is, if you think about what are the ingredients that make a great athlete or a person adept at any skill, we always think about sort of the motor side of it, you know, like how, how graceful are they at movement? But just as important is their really precise knowledge about what's possible and what's impossible to do. You know, a downhill skier knows really well what kind of slopes require, what kind of movements, what's possible, what's impossible. And as you develop experience, all those affordances evolve with you. Yeah, a climber Climber sees opportunity that a, you know, a novice just doesn't even know exists. You know, they see handholds that we don't see and so forth. So we all do this through experience. We, we completely change how we understand and, and perceive opportunities in the environment. And then something you highlight in this book that this ability to recognize affordances, this can actually dull and it might explain like why old people fall down a lot as they get older. Right. So this is, this is a radical departure from 
sort of the medical model that's out there right now, which is the reason people fall is because they can't see, they're weak, or they have problems with the balance organs, right? So it's either they can't sense or they can't, or they're weak. But lots of people fall down that are strong, that can see, <laughs> and they have good balance. So why are they, why are so many people falling? Remember, falling is the number one reason people go to emergency rooms. And it's, it's old people, young people, everybody's falling down all the time. It's amazing how many people fall. Now, probably every listener you have has, has fallen in, in a, a awkward circumstance somewhere along the way. And so you have to think there's something else going on that's that's making us fall. And the affordance idea is, is really that you get rusty, right? And that's true with climbing. You know, if you've been a climber for a while and you go away from it, you don't know what's possible anymore. You've got to relearn what kind of handholds work for you, what kind of footholds work. If you haven't been walking much, it's amazing. You actually kind of lose your skill at simply walking, right? And then and so you become more vulnerable to, to, you know, like a crack in the sidewalk. You're more likely to trip on that. I mean, just really simple little things uh, can fool us. And so it, it actually leads to sort of a radical view about what to do with aging, which is kind of the opposite of what a lot of people have recommended. People say, well, you got to be super safe. You shouldn't go on anything rough. You should only be on surfaces like, you know, linoleum floors like you'd find in the local mall uh, so that you absolutely minimize your risk of tripping on anything. And the affordance idea would actually kind of argue the opposite. It would say throughout life, especially as you age, you should continue to constantly challenge yourself, you know, given your strength and vision, which you have, on the roughest surfaces you have. You should be out walking on gravel roads. You should be in, you know, on, on trails rather than perfectly smooth sidewalks. You know, change it up. The more variety and complexity there is in the kinds of surfaces you're walking on, the more adapted you are and the less likely you're to fall. You know, I always like to think of those, you know, hundred year old Greek ladies on the islands going up and down the cliffs, no problem. I right? seem to be living forever and not falling at all. You know, they're there. They're perfectly adapted to these really wild environments. And the rest of us kind of forget about how valuable that is. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. And as you said, this doesn't just happen to old people. It happens, I mean, you're starting, I guess you're seeing a lot of young people because they're not engaging with complex environments outdoors. They're just, all they see is their house and maybe the playground asphalt and the school floor and that's it. And then they encounter some sort of weird affordance. They don't know how to deal with it and they, they fall down and sprain a wrist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the reality is, Everything we learn motorically, we're also kind of unlearning. Not completely. Like, uh, you know, once you learn to ride a bicycle, you know how to ride a bike. But if you haven't ridden a bicycle in 10 years and you get on a bicycle, you're a little, actually, if you measure the person's movements, they're a little sloppy at it at first. It takes some, there's relearning, there's constant forgetting and relearning. And, you know, adding grace and elegance to, to, to any kind of action or, or movement. So it's really important, I think, to, to continue sort of this kind of general physicality throughout life. No, that makes me think of when I remember when I was a kid, you know, I, some of the, I was thinking about some of the crazy stuff that I was doing on my bike when I was like seven, eight, nine, like yeah. going up big dirt ramps. 
and just flying. <laughs> and I, I think about doing that now, I would be, I, I, I wouldn't do it. I was, I, I could not do this. I would not know how to like handle the slope. What should I do? I think it's a perfect example of you know, not using it and losing it. Oh yeah. It's, it's, we're constantly losing it. I have a, it, it's subtle. You, you know, the basic skills and the basic motor programs for the actions, they stick, but the, the, the elegance of the action is, is really vulnerable, right? If you stop doing it, you lose that grace very quickly. So another uh, idea of physical intelligence is idea of is it body schema. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Body, okay. Body schema. What is body, body schema? It, it, it's really your map of where you are right now. Where's, you know, if you were to draw a picture of, your posture right now. What's that posture, right? To do anything, you got to know, to do anything physical, you have to know your posture. So you need a way of tracking that. And it's a hard problem because you're this mushy, three-dimensional object that's constantly changing its posture. And it's the sensors for tracking this are very noisy. They're easily fooled. So it's it's a real hard problem for the brain to keep track of of simply the posture, and it's another one of these things that you would think, well, that's just kind of we have that, we map it, we're pretty good at it, no big deal. But it's it's a little bit like affordance. If you think about great athletes or, or great any, any kind of great physical performer, scheme is a huge, huge piece of their skill set. It's not again, it's not just muscles and movements it's this awareness of your posture and pose just think of just watch some fred astaire videos of him dancing if you want to see someone with absolute perfect control over their over their uh, body position at any point in a dance you know platform divers you know anybody doing anything involving gymnastics you know they all have an exquisite ability to track uh, body pose and it's learned right it takes practice and experience to to understand what those what where you are in space at any given moment in time, and that's why it's hard to like teach kids like sports movements. I, I know if I have that trouble with, like trying to explain to like my kids like how to throw a ball, it's like well, and they you try to tell it to them, and like they you can tell they, they have no idea how their body's moving at all, or they're having a hard time. Right, it's it's absolutely true. Yet you know when we talk about you know why is physical intelligence you know hard to get at. This is one of the places that's probably the most difficult to get to, which is connecting your conscious verbal mind with your own posture. You know, if you can look at it, but that's kind of cheating. If you're to close your eyes and just say, where am I in space? They're really disconnected. And and so you really just have to do it experientially. Now there's exceptions to that. Like there are elite athletes, really, really trained athletes who really can now consciously access specific attributes about their posture. Tiger Woods is a good example. He can, you know, at the, at the height of his backswing, he can just stop in mid swing and just say, Oh, you know, I need to just turn my wrist, da, 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 you know, or, or I need to raise my elbows, da, 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 da. you know, he knows exactly you know, kind of where he is in the super dynamic, fast golf swing. But that's the exception, not the rule. So it sounds like, okay, if someone thinks they're clumsy 
and they don't, they're awkward. They feel awkward when they move. It's not that they're inherently like that. It's like, they just need to practice more. I mean, this sounds like it's, it's a skill, if you want to call it that, that can be developed. Absolutely. This is pure skill. And, you know, I, I, in the book, I talk about, you know, some examples of how people do this. Varied practice really helps. So not just doing your one sport, but shaking it up with a couple different activities helps sort of a you learn body schema more globally and that gives you some uh, advantage you know i have an example of bronco bull riders right who do yoga (laughs) you know and it makes sense right i mean riding a bull has got to be one of the most dynamic complicated activities we've thought up and because it's super unpredictable but they have to know exactly their posture and center of gravity to stay on this bull and so body awareness is a big piece of that skill. And so just doing other activities where you, you enhance that, like yoga help helps them. So yeah, mix it up, do diverse things. Mix it up. So yeah. one of my uh, favorite chapters was the chapters on problem solving and bears. Because we often think of like problem solving as if it's like a human thing. And humans, you just sit down and you think about the thing and you abstract, and which, which we do. But you also make the case that problem solving can also be a very physical activity and, and bears show us that that's the case. Yes, there's, you, you hit it absolutely right. You know, if you say, okay, solve a problem, you could sort of think of this like a computer program. Okay, I'm going to do some kind of hierarchical, logical, dynamic programming to look for all the possible solutions. And, you know, we'll work backwards and find out the optimal thing to do. And sort of our, our war with bears over how we store foods in the national parks shows that a lot of problem solving can be done without ever having to do that fancy kind of logical reasoning that inside us and inside bears, there are these sort of learning engines that through trial and error, figure out how to take care of a lot of problems, right? And so that chapter explores sort of the the arms race with the bears and how each time we think we've outsmarted them, they kind of solve the problem. Like you would think, well, they don't have paw dexterity, so we're going to make bear boxes with funny handles. Well, through trial and error, they just figure out how to use their hands in a new way. So they've got a learning engine for learning dexterity with their paw that we didn't recognize existed. And we have that same kind of learning engine. So we can learn to do things with our hands as well. Or, you know, we think, well, here's a, here's a, we'll put the food in this jar, this plastic jar, and they're not going to have the fortitude and endurance and willingness to work at the problem long enough to get through it. Well, yeah, some bears will just chew through these plastic containers or, oh, this has a tiny little tab on it, and it requires a sequential movement. It has to do, first it has to push this tab, and then it has to turn the top of the jar to get this thing open. Well, sure, they can learn to do a, a simple two-step action like that. So <laughs> each 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 solution we've come up with, they through trial and error, they, they've figured it out. And that's a really powerful learning engine that's that's available to them. And so the chapter kind of ends with, Asking, well, there's a point at which bears will get stuck, right? There's eventually there is something special about humans that bears and actually all the primates don't have and kind of explore that. 
some people thought that the chimps were really special in sort of abstraction that they that they could they had sort of sort of a basic form of reasoning that allowed them to go past kind of all the other species the classic example is now William Kohler had this chimp and he hung a banana in a in a backyard environment and there were some boxes sitting around and Kohler watched as the chimp stacked all the boxes so he could get up high enough to get the banana. And he said, Oh, this is a, this is a fundamental kind of reasoning in primates. It simply doesn't exist in bears, but I've seen bear. I saw a bear do this same thing in the wild in Yosemite. It stacked logs to, so it could get higher to reach for my food. (laughs) So, so the claim so other primates and bears are very, very similar in what they can do in terms of problem solving. What none of them can do is complicated sequential reasoning. So if I've got a really, if I've got to look at a problem and let's say there's three steps, step one, step two, step three, and the only way I can solve it is to first figure out what to, what the final action should be and then work backwards to the first step. They can't do that. They can they can figure out the first thing to do, then the second thing to do, then the third thing to do through trial and error, but they can't they can't do the reverse, what we would call dynamic programming. They can't Oh yeah, I got to set things up at the end and then work at the beginning. Right, just because we can do that, we also problem solve like bears sometimes, right? We just sort of just keep doing different things until we figure out how to do it and find the thing that works. Yeah. In fact, most of what we do is that we, we, uh, there's something we really hate actually thinking very hard about a problem. Most of the time, good example would be, um, we're going to, we're going to have a breakfast for four and I want to have the, the food, the coffee, all out on the table at the same time. I want to have the table set, right? I have to, I have to organize cooking the eggs and timing that with cooking the toast and setting the table. I've got all these contingencies I've got to sort out and time just right so that when the guests arrive, everything's ready. And most people don't think through, well, this is how long the eggs take. This is how long the toast takes. They just kind of go for it <laughs> and they start scrambling and through lots of experience and trial and error and many breakfasts, they kind of learn unconsciously what the right timing relationships are so that the, the meal all comes out at the same time. And it seems like that's how we learn skills. I mean, I think you can watch instructional videos and like, you know, step by step by step, but often it's just, you just have to do something over and over again until you find that groove and you find what works. That's right. Now, all this works great until the dimensionality gets too big. You know, if you think about doing a task that has six steps, there's 720 possible orderings of those six steps. And so, you know, who's going to try 720 steps, right? So there's some things where you, eventually you just have to think about it a little bit and you know try to get some at least some of it organized in advance and that's kind of what the literature is showing now we don't we don't think through all, if if it's a big problem 
that has a lot of steps. We don't necessarily plan all of them, but we chunk them into little groupings and then we try to just through trial and error, learn within each of those little groupings. So the final thing you talk about is uh, fatigue. And this has been an ongoing debate in medicine and science, like what causes fatigue? Because you talk about this one guy who looked at a bird, like birds could fly thousands of miles, right? And they flap in their wings and they never get tired. But a human like walks a mile and they're like, man, I'm I'm feeling chuffed here. So what's going on with our body and mind? What is there, is the body get fatigued? Does the mind get fatigued? Is it both? What's happening there? It's both. I think what's evolved in the last decade has been recognizing that it is both. For a long time in the 70s, all the way going back to the 1920s, I would say, we really focused on lactic acid and oxygen. The idea that you you run around the track as fast as you can. Your muscles make a lot of lactic acid. You don't get enough oxygen on board. And essentially, you have these toxins circulating that your brain senses and goes, wow, you know, I'm really overdoing it with my muscles. I need to, I need to slow it down and take a break. And so you generate a sense of fatigue based on uh, sort of the pain that comes from that kind of intense exertion. And that's true, right? All, that's all true. You go out to the track and you go sprint as hard as you can. You will feel pain and you will feel fatigue. There's no doubt about it. And you will have those, you know, biochemical changes in your bloodstream. So we're not, we're not saying that doesn't exist, but that doesn't explain most of the fatigue that people day to day will describe, which is I just walked five miles through a shopping mall. I'm tired of walking, right? What's that fatigue, right? So it's definitely not, it's not, I don't have a ton of lactic acid built up in my bloodstream. I haven't been sprinting through the mall. I've just been strolling. So what's going on there? And this goes back to all the way back to Musso. That's the guy I was, you know, you, know, you mentioned with the birds. Musso was in a, he's really the first sort of neurophysiologist that ever existed. And he was really struggling in the 1870s with what is fatigue? What, what could this be? And he, he thought about it in lots of different ways, not just the, the chemical way. He did think about the chemical idea. So he did things like, uh, he made frogs really tired by making them jump a lot. And then he sacrificed the frogs, ground them up and injected them in dogs. And then he claimed that the dogs got tired. Well, it's kind of a weird experiment, but it's, it's, it shows you how primitive things were. But, you know, he's searching for the, the, the chemicals that could do it. But then ultimately he realized that a lot of fatigue is not that. It's essentially an emotion that the brain generates independent of whatever the muscles are doing. And his idea was, well, you generate this emotion to hedge your bets. It's like a governor on an engine that keeps it from spinning too fast. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. The idea would be, okay, you're, you're a hunter-gatherer. You've just walked half the day. And you're not really sure how much more you're going to have to walk that day. It could be a little bit. It could be a lot. But you're going to set your defaults to assume that it's going to be a lot. And so you always kind of keep a lot in reserve. You don't want to blow out all your gaskets and and 
exert yourself to the point of true exhaustion. You always want to keep a lot in reserve because you don't know what's going to happen in the wild. And so your brain creates a sense of fatigue. It's an emotion that regulates how hard you're going to go. And that assures that you're going to keep some, some energy in reserve just in case. And so we see this now, uh, coaches have figured this out. And so if you look now at sports that do require long distance exertion, particularly like Nordic racing, long distance rowing, those athletes train themselves right up to their lactic acid threshold. And then they push themselves over long time periods past the point, far, far past the point where they sense uh, fatigue. They feel the fatigue, but they just learn to suppress it, the emotional fatigue. They just suppress that. And the funny thing is they get to the, you'll see this all the time now in races, people get to the finish line and they collapse on the ground. And it's as if they're trying to suppress this emotional sense all the way up to the finish line. They get to the finish line. They don't need to suppress it anymore. And so like this emotion just now just wins and it just throws them to the ground. But they're back, you know, it's not like they're actually truly exhausted because within a minute they're up on their feet and running around and waving to everybody if they win the race. So it really is a, a battle of sort of multiple minds we have, one of which is persevering and pushing us as hard as we can. And another one is creating this emotional sense and saying, no, 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 you don't want to go this fast. You want to hold some, you want to hold some in reserve because we don't know if that really is the end of the race. Maybe, maybe you're being tricked and the race is another (laughs) hour. (laughs) You've got another hour to go. So your mind's playing these games with you all the time when, when you're out doing physical activities. That'd be a good race. You, you trick people about the finish line and then say, no, actually, it's the end. No, I'm joking. That'd be very <laughs> mean. What do you hope readers walk away with after reading your book? Well, I, I got to I gotta sh- go back once. Oh, sure. <laughs> Before we get to that, I've, I want to mention the Barkley Marathon. Okay, yeah. Uh, which kind of, the Barkley Marathon is one of the most ingenious races because it's an ultra run in extreme wild Appalachian wilderness. And the athletes don't know the route until one hour before the race. And they don't know when the race is even going to begin for the day prior to when they all show up. So it's really tr- it, it really plays on this idea of fatigue as an emotion. Now we're really going to mess them up by not letting them know where they're going to go, how far they're going to go for, and what they need to do to plan the route until the very last second. And so there's they've got no ability to mentally prepare sort of how or how to sort of set their expected level of, of what a reasonable amount of fatigue is going to be. It's, yeah, it's wonder, really ingenious. I wonder who the kind of people who sign up for that. Oh, they're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> in the best possible way. <laughs> the yeah, best they're really way. testing themselves in a, in a, in a profound way. And, and so after you're know, talking about physical intelligence and writing about it, what do you hope readers walk away with after reading your book? 
Well, I hope they go away with it realizing that, you know, it's, it's not just use it or lose it. It's use it in interesting ways that physical intelligence is not the same as simple exercise. It's really projecting yourself into really novel and interesting and challenging situations. You know, it's the difference between getting your exercise on a treadmill and getting your exercise on a trail in a park near your house. There's just no comparison, right? There's so much more that comes from real physical, complex, and varied environments uh, compared to sort of simple exercise. I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise. I'm saying we should double down and and make that exercise even more interesting, even more physically interesting and demanding. And I think a, per- a person gets far more well-being from doing that. Uh, they age more gracefully and they experience much more of the world in a better way. And it also sounds like even as you're as an adult, like try new stuff, take up dancing, join a softball team, like learn a new sport. Like don't be afraid of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, whatever your body will allow you to do, push it a little bit, you know? Right. Well, Scott, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book's on Amazon. That's easy to find. I don't have a big social media presence. <laughs> That's fine. That's great. I'm, it's always refreshing to find you know, people like that. Uh, you, you can come to my house and talk to me or <laughs> email me. Anyway, yeah, the book's on Amazon and uh, I've got a website for my lab and anybody can email me with questions. Well, fantastic. Well, Scott Grafton, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. This is great. My guest today was Scott Grafton. He's the author of the book, Physical Intelligence. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash physical intelligence, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you could do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AUN Podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AUN Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.